So today, I'm going to preach a special Christmas sermon. Um, I like preaching Christmas sermons because, well, we're in what's called Advent season. Advent is celebrating Jesus' coming into the world. And I want to preach that sermon from Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. And for context, let's read verses 18 to 25. 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now this verse is the verse we're going to focus on, so pay attention here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you pursued us, and that, Lord, in Jesus, you're with us. I thank you so much for this Christmas season. Father, help me to speak as, Lord, you would have me speak. Help Lord, all these students to listen as they should listen. Help us all, Lord, to marvel at our wondrous and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his perfect name we pray. Amen. So Christmas is everywhere, right? Like there's a Christmas tree, like literally in the foyer. You see all the lights, maybe on your house. You see Christmas presents, and it's awesome. I like Christmas time. Um, what's your favorite part about Christmas? Why don't you go turn your neighbor or one of your neighbors and just tell them, what's your favorite part about Christmas? Everything. You, you like everything? Awesome. Cool. <clears throat> Brendan, you can tell Kevin. <laughs> All right, so food, music, seeing family, warm fires, um, presents, obviously, right? Like, having no school, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Okay, coming back up here. One of my favorite things about Christmas season is the hymns. Especially, I love hearing the hymns, like, even, like, the shopping mall. And one of my favorite hymns, or one of the classic hymns, is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Who knows that song? O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And ransom, that means save, captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Now we sang a song actually, similar to this. Emmanuel is spelled with the E, right? I think it says, glory to God in the highest, Emmanuel. Right? So that's a word we use a lot during Christmas time. Who knows what it means? Sarah. God with us, right? That's literally what Matthew 1.23 says. Good job. So, Emmanuel, if you learn anything from today, means God with us. It's from the Hebrew, um, and it's used actually only three times in the entire Bible. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, and Matthew 1. Next question. Who is Emmanuel? Who is Emmanuel? Jesus, good. That's like the answer to every children's ministry question. You passed. So, Jesus is Emmanuel, right? 
Jesus is God with us. And that's our key idea. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Very simple. Now, as you think about that, you should have two questions pop into your head. First question, how? How did God become man? I mean, if you were to try to take a box, right, and put God in that box, it wouldn't work, right? That's ridiculous. Okay, you, if, you, if you had God, who is the one who created all things, he's by definition the creator, right? That means he's not created, and therefore not part of creation. And yet, God was born from Mary. Mary, who is a created woman. God is the one who sustains the whole world. He holds everything together. Without him, everything would fall apart. And yet, while he was a baby, he sustained the whole universe. When he couldn't talk, he held you together. Now think about that, right? That's crazy. That's, that's really mind-boggling. This is the glorious meaning of Christmas. That God, God, the creator God, came to dwell with us by becoming man. Now, this is the miracle that theologians call the incarnation. Who's, who's heard that word before? Incarnation. Yeah, okay, some of you. Who's heard of carne asada before? Cool. Some of you? Okay, so carne asada is meat, right? I think it's like a taco meat. I think it's beef. Thank you. <laughs> so carne, incarnation, they're actually from the same word. It means flesh, like this stuff, like the arms, the flesh and bones of who you are, right? So incarnation means that God became flesh. God took on flesh, right? So what does, in, what does incarnation mean? God took on flesh, right? God became man. When God became man, he didn't stop becoming God and then start becoming man. That's not how that happens, right? The phrase I want you to know is that Jesus is truly God and Jesus is truly man. Let me explain what that means. First of all, Jesus is not a brownie, okay? When I make brownies, what do I do? Eggs, flour, sugar, chocolate, mixed together, bake it, right? And I eat it. It comes out totally different than the parts that went into it, right? So God did not take, you know, a little bit of God stuff, a little bit of man stuff, and mix it together and get Jesus, like a brand new brownie thing, right? That's not how God works. That's not, excuse me, that's not how Jesus is. Jesus is truly God and truly man. They're distinct. But Jesus is also not two persons. He's not sometimes God and sometimes man. He's like a transformer, you know, like, becomes a car, and then becomes like a giant robot, and becomes a car again, right? Like, that's not how Jesus is. He's truly God and truly man at the same time. Is it like a layer of brownie? Not a layer of brownie either. No brownies. <laughs> Jesus is also not like some, it's not as if God put on a costume that made him just look like a man, right? He's not like something wrapped up and just hidden with like wrapping paper or something. He's truly God and truly man. He's not wearing a disguise that just looks like man. Lastly, Jesus is not merely a man with, like, superpowers, right? He's not like, I don't know, Spider-Man, or I guess Batman's not really a superpower. So he's not like Spider-Man. He's truly God and truly man. Not just a man with extraordinary powers, but truly God himself and truly man in his nature. To be truly God means that he fully possesses all the fullness of God in himself. He's perfect in power, perfect in knowledge, perfect in grace and truth, just like God the Father is. To be truly human means that he hungered and thirsted and got tired, was tempted by sin, and even grew up from a child all the way to an adult. Now, if that makes your head hurt, good, because you're starting to grasp just how hard understanding the two natures, the one person, 
of Jesus Christ is. But let's keep going, right? Think about this. The one who made the world took on a body of dust. The one who named the stars learned to call his mom Mama and his dad Dada. The one who planned everything before time was even created entered human history at a specific point in time and lived on this earth. There's a lot we can learn about the incarnation, but ultimately it's beyond our human comprehension. We, even though we can't fully understand it, though, we can truly understand it. The main point is that God came down to us. God came down to us. And that is amazing. But that should prompt another question. Why? Why did God come down? Why did God become man? The simple answer is that because God can't die. But man can And Jesus became man in order to die for the sins of the world. He loved the world, and so he sent his son to pay the penalty for sin, death. And he rose again victorious over sin, death, and the grave. This was Jesus' mission, and he fulfilled it perfectly. I mean, I mean, think of that. His mission from the very beginning was to come and die for you and for me. You've heard this gospel many times in youth group. It's not new. So actually what I want to do today is I want to take a zoom out lens, shift a little bit, and look at the diamond from a different angle, from a really broad, overscoping view. When God became man, he came to dwell with his people. That word dwell is really important. And Nathan, can you read John 1.14 for us? Big, loud voice. Thank you, Nathan. Excellent. The part I want to focus on, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh, incarnation, right? And he dwelt among us. Thank you, Joycelyn. He dwelt among us. What does it mean to dwell? What does it mean to dwell? It means more than just to hang out and chill. It actually means to settle, to live among, to make one's home there, right? You wouldn't say, oh, I go to school to live there, right? That's ridiculous. You go to school and you come back and you live at home. You wouldn't say, oh, I live in the church building, you are only here for you know, youth group, Sunday service, maybe an event or to serve at the church. You don't live here, though. But Jesus left his glorious home in heaven to come down to live with us. He dwelt among us. It wasn't like a short vacation like many of us will take over Christmas break. He came to live his entirely earthly life with us. And that's amazing. That's amazing. It's actually part of the greatest story ever told. Think about the classic you know, knight in shining armor story. Um, there's a problem, usually like, you know, some damsel in distress. There's an enemy, the evil witch or dragon, who's captured that damsel. There's a hero, the noble knight, brave, strong, and true. And there's the quest. The hero goes on this epic adventure to find the damsel, to almost die but not die, to slay the dragon, to save the damsel from certain death. They fall in love. He takes her home to be his queen. And they live, you know the words, Exactly. Happily ever after. It's totally cliche. You're right. Now imagine this story changed just a little bit. Let's say instead, the hero flew a drone and killed the dragon from his, you know, his basement. Or, or let's say the hero, you know, like, he's kind of lazy or he's like, kind of tired. He sent you know, some other strong warrior to do his work for him. And then the warrior brought back the damsel to him. Or let's say the hero and the damsel, you know, they just ended up kind of not liking each other. And so... Eh, like he brought her home and then they, you know, weren't friends. Um, or let's say the hero, you know, took the damsel home 
and they dropped her off at her parents' house, and yeah, sometimes I text and stuff, but they're, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, this is like the age of anti-heroes and like plot subversions, so maybe that would fly in Hollywood these days, but I think it's totally unsatisfying. It's totally unsatisfying, because we want the drama. We want the risk. We want the romance. We want the happily ever after. The knight himself must come for his bride. We want the knight to sacrifice for her, for his victory to mean something to us, to her. We want the knight and the damsel to fall in love, truly. We want, you know, it's a cherry on top for them to live happily ever after. Um, probably in some beautiful castle and have a great kingdom together, right? We want them to dwell as one. I think the desire for this kind of story doesn't come from Disney, although Disney, of course, has capitalized on that. But I actually think it's engraved on our hearts by God. I really do. And when you take a step back and look at the whole Bible, you'll see this is exactly the story that God has written for us in his word. It's the true story. So tonight, I want to retell the classic fairy tale story, but the true one. And the hero himself is God. His plan before the foundation of the world was to rescue his people, become our God, and to dwell with us. So first, let's look at God with us in the past. God with us, God with us in the past. First, in the Garden of Eden, before sin, God walked among his people. He walked in the same garden that Adam and Eve lived in. No sin means no separation, no problems, no strife. But what happened when they sinned? God cursed them, and they got kicked out of the garden. They could not be in the presence of God because they were sinful. And to understand that, imagine if I came to your house over winter break. Say I came on Thursday, this Thursday, and I knock on your door, you open the door, and I'm covered in mud, like head to toe. You don't even recognize who I am. I just have like an name that says Keith, and so that's you can tell. So I'm like, what? I'm like, hi, can I come in? What would you, what would you think? I think that you're insane. Yeah, that's good. You'd be like, I don't know, like, you're really dirty, right? Like, maybe after I take a hose and hose you down, or you, like, go wash yourself somewhere, not at home. Why? Sorry. It's because your home is clean. It's your home. You get to decide who comes in, who doesn't come in. And if I'm filthy and dirty, you don't want me inside, because I'll get muck all over your Christmas house, all over your Christmas decorations. Not good. God has the same right. He's holy. He's morally clean. He's morally pure. And he will not let sinners into his presence. In order to come to his home to dwell with him, we must be clean. But kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden is not the end of the story. It's just the very beginning. It's the first three chapters. After that, God still desires to dwell with his people. And he promises that he will make the way. The way that he next most significantly shows this is in something called the tabernacle. Who knows what a tabernacle is? Mason. Very close, very close. So it's a building, you have to be clean to get in. You pray to God there, good. Uh, what's a tabernacle? Yeah, so it's a place that Jewish people built to praise to God. The important thing, important word I want you to remember, it's a tent. It's a big fancy tent, like a really expensive tent, right? That's a tabernacle. And the reason, the reason that's important is because God said, when you make this tent according to my way, I will meet you there. Who is Exodus 29? I think that was Exodus 29. Becky, can you read Exodus 29, verse 43 for us? There I will meet with the people of Israel. Good. And can you jump to verse 45 and finish verse 46, please? I will dwell among the people of Israel and will 
Thank you, Becky. Perfect. So, he rescued them from Egypt. He said he'll meet them at the tabernacle. I will be their God. I will dwell among them. They will be my people. That was God's intention. He will dwell with them. Now, when the Israelites finished building the tabernacle, God fulfilled his promise to them. Uh, Evelyn, can you read Exodus 40, verse 34 for us, please? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Perfect. Thank you. So the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 38 says, For the cloud of the Lord was, by the t was on the tabernacle by day. So imagine a pillar cloud, you can see. And fire was, on it, was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the tent of meeting, this tabernacle, was special because God dwelt there. So if you're an Israelite, and you're like, oh man, like, I wonder if God is with us. You literally turn around, you see this giant cloud, okay, God is with us. Or it's nighttime. <laughs> or giant pillar of fire, okay, God is with us, right? So you pretty much see a big cloud or a big cloud. Exactly. So for many years, God's people worshipped him this way. They knew God was with them. They sacrificed before him, worshipped him, and enjoyed the presence of God. Now, later on, the cloud and fire were not always there. But they knew that the Lord God was with them in the tabernacle. God actually promised an even greater blessing to them in one of the most important chapters of the Old Testament, Leviticus 26.11. I think that's Alyssa, right? Can you read verse 11 and 12, please? Thank you. So do you see the connection? He's promising, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will not reject you. And he promises, note this, I will walk among you. Right? That's calling back to Genesis 3. Or, yeah, Genesis 3, when God was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. This is the direction that God is moving. I'll walk among you, I'll be your God, and you will be my people. God's desire is to dwell with his people. Not just hang out with them for once in a while and then go back to his home. Not take a vacation here and then go back home. Not just to dwell next to them, kind of like that neighbor you never talked to but to dwell in relationship, to know us truly in the most special relationship that says, I am your God and you are my people. However, almost 500 years after the tabernacle was built, King Solomon built a temple. And I think that's exactly what you were getting at, Mason. It's a giant, fancy building where God's presence permanently dwells. You cannot move a building, right? This temple was for basically an upgrade. God got an upgrade, he got a fancier quote, unquote, house, and the presence of God filled that tabernacle, excuse me, filled that temple just like it filled the tabernacle, the tent. But Israel still grew more and more sinful, more and more sinful. They worshiped other gods, they bowed down to them, and they honestly became insane. They worshiped gods even in that temple. They're worshiping other gods than the true God. So, about 350 years after they built that temple, God left. God left his people. You can, if you want to read about that, you can read Ezekiel 9, how the glory of God, the presence of God, left the temple. That means after thousands of years, a thousand years of dwelling with his people, no longer could Israel say, oh yeah, God is with us. They could no longer say that because he had left them. Have you ever gotten lost? I have. Um, when my mom was... When I was younger, my mom would take me shopping because I was too young to be left at home. This is before Game Boys, so you literally have nothing to do. 
you can't stay in the car, it's not safe, so I would go, you know those like clothes hanger things that are circles? You like walk around, you like pick out all your clothes from there? Anyone know what I'm talking about? So I was small enough where I could go in it and like just sit in the middle on like that crossbar thing, which is not a very comfortable seat, but that's what I did, right? So I was sitting there once, you know, hanging out, probably too long, and I realized, oh, I don't hear my mom anymore. So I poke my head out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, where is she? Frantic, I'm afraid. What do I, you know, maybe she abandoned me, maybe I'm lost forever. I'm gonna die in this like closed thing. I hate stores, right? So I did what any sensible, like, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight year old would do. I cried like a baby. <laughs> cried like a baby. I'm, I'm dead, right? I'm afraid, I'm lost, I don't know what to do. And of course, like, my mom's right there. <laughs> it's like around the corner or something. And if you, I mean, I'm here today, so I didn't get abandoned, <laughs> but I felt like it. I felt like it. I felt alone. That's a very tiny picture of what it might have felt like for God to leave his temple. For Israel's entire existence, they had him there. And now he was gone. Even after they received all these blessings as his chosen people, they rejected him. And so they're back exactly to where Adam and Eve were, kicked out of the garden, separated from the presence of God. But God does not leave them without a hope. Even after his presence left the temple, he promised Israel something very, very important. Who had that hard verse? Was it you, Lana? Ezekiel 37, verse 27. Oh, who had Ezekiel? Sorry. You had Ezekiel, right? My bad, Lana. Loud, loud. Sounds familiar, right? My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So God had not given up on his people. God had not given up. This was part of his plan. He was looking towards the future, saying, I will be your people. I will make it true. I will succeed in the mission. But how? They didn't know. Solomon's beautiful temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And several decades later, Israel rebuilt this temple in, like, miniature form. Or not miniature, but, like, not as great of form. But the glory of God never dwelt there like it did in the past. So where was God? Where was his promise? What was he doing? Isaiah 7, which was written 600 years before Christ, promised that a sign would be given. You know the sign. A sign would be given. The virgin would conceive and bear a son. And that, and that son's name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. The sign means that it's pointing forward to something, that God was not done working, not done working. Point number two, God with us in Jesus Christ. So, the glory of God leaves, 600 years pass. And then, you get Matthew 1. Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary is the virgin prophesied in Isaiah. The son is Christ. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now this is very important. At Christmas time we celebrate a lot of things, and we don't just celebrate that God came into the world. We don't just celebrate that. We do celebrate that, but we celebrate more. We celebrate the fact that Jesus is God come into the world to dwell with us, to dwell with us, to be our God, to call us, to make us his people. Jesus is the culmination of God's eternal plan to make us 
his own. He's the very embodiment of grace and truth. He's the final revelation of God himself. He's the radiance of the glory of God the Father. Romans 9 calls him, excuse me, Isaiah 9 says that he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And when Jesus dwelt among us, he was doing exactly what God did in the Garden of Eden. He walked with us. He was doing exactly what the tabernacle and the glory of God were supposed to show. He was the tabernacle. He was God himself dwelling. He came to his captive Israel, to his damsel in distress, to be their God, to make them his people. His glory blazed so that you could see him almost as visibly as a cloud of fire. He was the return of the presence of God to his people after 600 years. No longer in a building or in a tent, but in a man. In a man, the one who is truly God and truly man. God walked among us. God walked among us. Now, you know that song, The Church is One Foundation? It has a line that says this. From heaven he, Jesus, came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That's the story. That's the beauty. Christ came and sought us to make us his holy bride. He came down to dwell with us, to cover us with his love, to wash away our sins, to be our hero that saves us from death and shame. He sacrificed his life to rescue us from death. He resurrected from the dead and promised to bring us home to him so what? That we would live happily ever after. Do you realize he didn't love us because we're good? He didn't love us because we're beautiful in and of ourselves? He didn't love us because we're worthy in some way? Sometimes, and I think our more honest moments, we look at ourselves and we see all the faults, all the sins, all the, the messed up things about us. And we conclude, I'm not lovable. I'm not smart. I'm not cool. I'm not good. I'm not pretty. I'm not funny. I'm not worthy. And we condemn ourselves, we beat ourselves up, and we throw ourselves in the metaphorical trash, and we say, God can't love me. I'm too bad. Now, you may think that. You may have 10,000 reasons why you think that's true. But the matter of the fact stands, God still loves sinners like you and me. No matter what you think, God still loves sinners like you and me. God does not love because we're good. We're not good. God does not love because we do good. We don't do good. God does not love us because we're beautiful and that we can do stuff for him or because we have Christian parents or because we go to church or we go to Christian school because we know stuff about the Bible or because we sing songs to him. That's not why God loves us. God doesn't, have to have, doesn't even have to love us. But he does. He loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. He loves us so much that he even sent his son to die for our sins. So in one sense, it doesn't really matter if you think you're unlovable. You could have 10 billion reasons why you think that's true. But God says no. He pursues his people from the very beginning of human history all the way back to the sin in the Garden of Eden and even sent his son to seek his bride, to seek us. That's how much God loved us. Point number three, God with us now. Now, I can hear you saying, like, that was a long time ago. 
I don't see Jesus. Like, he's not walking around with us anymore, right? So what's going on? Where is he? Jesus is still Emmanuel. Matthew 28, 20 says that he, he says that he'll be with us always. That's a beautiful promise. But that doesn't actually mean he'll be with us physically always. Right? Who um, had John 15, 26? Can you read for us, Lana? Thank you. So when the advocate, the helper, comes, whom Jesus says he'll send from the Father, who's this? The Spirit of Truth. Right? Who's the Spirit of Truth? Anyone know? Go ahead, Sarah. The He's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we call him the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Trinity. Who knows what the Trinity means? It's kind of rolling. Okay. One God, three persons. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All truly God, and yet not three gods, one God, three distinct persons. Now, the important thing to mention about that is that every person of the Trinity, every person of God, pursued sinners. It was God's plan, God the Father's plan, to redeem us, to seek us. It was God the Son who accomplished forgiveness and reconciliation on the cross for us. It was God the Spirit who applies that salvation to his chosen people. And it's God the Spirit who makes Jesus alive to us in our hearts. It's through the Spirit that we know and believe and trust that Jesus is with us, even though we can't see him. Now, follow with me. Jesus dwelt among us. In the Spirit, God dwells in us. Do you realize that? God dwelt in the tabernacle, in the tent. God dwelt in the temple. And now God dwells in the church, in believers. Uh, who has 1 Corinthians 3? Did I get that one away? I don't think I did. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Do you, all of you, do all of you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Think about that. Believers, collectively, are called the temple of God. 2 Corinthians 6 says that, For we, collectively the church, are the temple of the living God. As God said, and this is very important, note this, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Sound familiar? Sounds just like, I don't know, Exodus 29, Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 37, Matthew 1, John 1. There's a theme here, right? God wants to dwell with us. God wants to be with his people. God wants to know us as his, and he wants us to know him as our God. Now, there are lots of applications for this. Um, actually, we just want to quote one verse and pull out one particular application. I want to talk about fear. I want to talk about fear. What are you afraid of? You're afraid of COVID, parents getting divorced, failing a class, not making the team, losing your friends, being embarrassed at school, being made fun of, being awkward, standing out in a crowd. What are you afraid of? I think some of us are afraid of the future. I have no control of the future, just like you have no control of the future. What's going to happen? I don't know. I think most of us are afraid of change, because change is hard. Like, yeah, you? Okay, thanks, Nathan. <laughs> I think all of us are afraid of pain and suffering. No one likes that, right? And if given the chance, we would all choose not pain, not suffering, not fear. We don't want those kind of things. 
But what does God say to our fears? Who at Isaiah 41.10? Can you read it loud for us, Sarah? Keep going. I will sing to you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right Thank you, Sarah. Do not fear or fear not. I am with you. Sound familiar? It's God comforting his people. Right. Now, let's say you had to walk down a very scary alleyway in Gotham City. Who knows Gotham City is? It's a fake city. Um, who's the superhero in Gotham City? Batman. Batman. Thank you. Okay. So let's say you had to walk down the super dark alleyway in Gotham City. There's mobs there, there could be thieves there, murderers, who knows? Who would be afraid? I'd be totally afraid, right? Like, I can't fight people. <laughs> like, I'm not that strong, Wait right? Why are, you, why are you walking along the I have to. Let's say I, I park my car in there or something. But let's say, let's, like, like, like a dummy, don't do that, right? But let's say, okay, you have to go and get your car. Let's say Batman is your personal escort. So, hey, I promise I will take you to your car and make sure you're safe. And let's say Superman is also, like, you know, there, and it's cleared out the whole alley. He's like, yeah, it's safe. I did x-ray vision or whatever. It's fine. And let's say, I don't know, the, the good guys in the city decorated the whole alleyway like Christmas. You know, lights everywhere, there's Christmas trees, like, you know, like Santa Claus and dancing and stuff. Like, would you be afraid then? No. No, like, that's ridiculous, right? Who would be afraid of that? Who would be afraid if Batman and Superman and lights are with you? What if God is with you? What if God is with you? Fear not, I'm with you. Do not be afraid. That's the promise that God gives to us. That's the promise that God gives to us. He's with us. Who's stronger than him? Who's going to intimidate him? Who's going to beat him? Right? No one has more love for you than him. We do not have to be afraid. And he says, not only do not be afraid, for I'm with you, but he says, I am your God. I am your God. He's not just some generic you know, superhero out there who's, I don't know, flying around. Maybe Superman misses you. Maybe Batman lies, right? He's your God. He's for you. He's with you. He's your heavenly father. He's your protector. He's your shield. He's your fortress. He's your strength. He's on your side. So if you feel weak, if you feel afraid, then God says to you, I will strengthen you. If you feel helpless, you feel like you don't know what to do, then God says, I will help you. If you feel like you're drowning in your misery and your shame, you don't know what to do with your sin, he says, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. No matter what comes in your path, no matter who wants to do you harm, no matter what circumstances you're brought through, no matter what pain and loss God brings you through, dear Christian, God is with you. He's your God. He will not forsake you. That's who this God of the Bible is. And his dwelling with us is not just something in the past in the Old Testament, not even just something that Jesus did, but it's actually a foundational truth and the guarantee of our future comfort and hope for future comfort and hope. Look at point four with me. God with us forever. God with us forever. On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus said, in John 14, verse 2 to 3. That's, you ever been in John 14, verse 2 to 3? Can you read it loud? Thank you. Perfect. My father's house has many rooms. Rooms means dwelling places. Dwelling places. And Christ left to do what? 
to prepare that for us. And he didn't just come to dwell with us, but he actually left to prepare for us to dwell with him. For us to dwell with him. That's the promise of our eternal home. That's our great hope and reward. To see Jesus face to face and live with him forever. That's how the story ends. The hero, Christ, rescues his bride, us, the church. He rescues us from the ravages and the decay and the death of sin. He brings us home to him, and then we live happily ever after. Revelation chapter 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, from the throne, saying, listen here, it's important. Behold, the tabernacle, you know that word, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. So from literally Genesis all the way to Revelation, God is seeking to dwell with his people. And he promises it will come true. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the remembrance of when God came in flesh to be with us, but a blazing beacon pointing towards the ultimate consummation when God will dwell among us, and we shall be his people, and he will be our God forever and ever. I would even say happily ever after. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much that you sought a sinful people to be your own, Lord, Show us, Lord, persuade us, convince us that you are good and we can run to you with all of our mess, all of our problems. And Lord, you will make us clean. We thank you that you loved us first. We thank you that you sought us to be with us, to be our God. Lord, we need you. Show us that's true. I thank you so much for all the conversations that will happen after this. I thank you so much for the season of Christmas. I I pray, Lord, that you help us to rejoice in our Savior who came to dwell with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.